0: the Gap, the official podcast series of the CMT Association, hosted by David Lundgren and Tyler Wood. This monthly podcast will bring veteran market analysts and money managers into conversations that will explore the interviewees' investment philosophy, their process, and decision-making tools. By learning more about their key mentors, early influences, and their long careers in financial services, Fill the Gap will highlight lessons our guests have learned over many decades and multiple market cycles. Join us in conversation with the men and women of Wall Street who discovered, engineered, and refined the discipline of technical market analysis. The gap is brought to you with support from optima a professional charting and data analytics platform whether you're a professional analyst portfolio manager or trader optima provides advanced technical and quantitative software to help you discover financial opportunities candidates in the cmt program gain free access to these powerful tools during the course of their study learn more at optima.com Hello and welcome to episode 33 of Fill the Gap, the official podcast of the CMT Association. My name is Tyler Wood. I'm a CMT charter holder, And as always, I am joined by my dear friend, David Lundgren, CMT CFA. How are you doing today, my friend?
1: Fantastic. Any any opportunity I get to sit around and talk about markets with some of my favorite technicians, it's a good day for me.
0: Right? Uh, It's a gift every day we wake up above ground. Uh, But today (laughs) to sit down with Jonathan Krinsky of BTIG T. Chief Technical Strategist, uh, what a what a pleasure, and uh, what a puzzle we have in front of us, Dave, to try to figure out where this market is headed. Talk to us a little bit about uh, your highlights from the conversation with Jonathan.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, how do you, how do you follow up a great conversation with with a guy like Ari Wall? Yeah, or you have uh, another great conversation with a guy like Jonathan <laughs> Krinsky. You know, we just really peeled back the onion on on what he's seeing in the markets today, which. You know, the onion is quite a bit more rotten inside than it looks on the outside. And uh, so we dug into a lot of that I thought was interesting with him because I think he's the first guest, certainly recently, who who tends to take a more mean reverting approach. Mm -hmm. So we talked a lot about the things that he's looking for to indicate that the the weakness that we're experiencing now is coming to an end and it starts you know, time to start buying. So we obviously we're not there yet, but uh, he mm-hmm. did a great job of detailing some of the things he'll be watching for uh, as time goes on. So really interesting conversation for this time.
0: Yeah. You know, it it struck me uh, the phrase that he used so many times was uh, we take it one step at a time. Yeah. And I think uh, for any of us that have financial news media or, uh, you know, the voices on X rattling around in our faces all day long, uh, it's, it's very easy to get bombastic with market calls or to hear somebody who's you know comparing the environment we're in to some other apocalyptic crash in the markets. and as a as a technician, you know sometimes you're you're following trends, and sometimes you're you know you're chopping wood, uh, which I think was where our conversation started yeah. before uh, before the interview actually uh, began recording. And I, I guess that process of uh, reacting responsibly, with what's in front of you is is really a kind of an evergreen lesson that we could take for all environments that you know we're not going to overreact to the data that's coming at us from the market but that you could have a responsible approach to finding uh key support levels based on that concept of polarity jonathan talked about using tools like volume at price to see congestion areas and and be able to have kind of an objective view of uh, where's the next level? And if we break through that, then the level below that and and having a more uh, even keeled approach to um, to equity indices that are in a downtrend, right? We're yeah. recording here on September 26th, 2023. And uh, the weakness is is really starting to take hold.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, the, 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 obviously we, we talked about it, but the precarious nature of that is that the uh the average stock has not really moved year to date so from here it doesn't take much to get down through the lows of October so mm-hmm. that's that's where we lie and that's we we dug deeply into that conversation with Jonathan today talking about intermarket analysis what bonds are mm-hmm. doing crude oil gold gold stocks all that stuff is moving in ways that we really need to pay, pay, pay attention today and I think mm-hmm. once again you know the, in times like this uh the value of Having a technician on your team, or having the opportunity to listen mm-hmm. to the voice of Jonathan Krinsky, Jeff DeGraff, Chris Verone, Ari Wald, and others—I mean, it's just uh, what a community we have. I mean, great people that I just mentioned, and there's many, many more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But but uh, right now, this is this is really really when you want to sit up and pay attention.
0: Absolutely. And in 2023, uh, the names you listed are all you know top of their game. But uh, as Jonathan and I came into the business, it was it was a different set of uh, of experts that we could go talk to, like Philip Roth, and, and Ralph Acampora, yeah. and Luis all all guests of, uh, of Fill the Gap. And uh, hopefully for our listeners today, uh, they're gonna take away some evergreen commentary, but also uh, start thinking about their risk management discipline uh, in relation to this market. And with that, we invite you to sit back and relax, enjoy this conversation with Jonathan Krinsky, CMT, Chief Technical Strategist at BTIG.
1: Welcome to Fill the Gap, the official podcast of the CMT Association. In episode 33, Tyler and I have the pleasure of speaking with Jonathan Krinsky. He's the Chief Market Technician at BTIG, and he, Jonathan received his uh, CMT charter just over 10 years ago. Many of you have probably seen him on CNBC and Bloomberg and other news outlets, but I've had the privilege of reading his research for over a decade, uh, while we while we intersected on the buy side, and um, I also had the the, the uh, unique uh, pleasure of golfing with him many times, where he gave me uh, many golf lessons that uh, translated into into the equity space as well. He's a phenomenal golfer, and we can talk about that as well. The overlap between golf and uh, in trading and investing. Ah, uh, but it's a real great pleasure to have uh, Jonathan on the podcast uh, this month, Jonathan, welcome to fill the Gap.
2: Thanks, guys. I'm uh, been a long time listener, first time caller, so happy
0: to be here. <laughs> nice to see you again, Jonathan. Yeah, so it's great
1: to have you on. Um, obviously, before we we dive into uh, your f- philosophy process and then, of course your outlook on the markets, let's let's hear a little bit about what got you into the business, how long you' have been in the business, what got you, to kind of come come over to the uh, the finance side, and then more specifically, what got you interested in technicals?
2: Yeah, so um, I guess yeah, I'll start. As you mentioned, uh, golf was a big part of my life. I was actually uh, on the path to be a, a head golf professional. I was going through the the PGA program, um, but realized that you know ultimately I, I enjoyed well, I enjoyed playing golf. I didn't necessarily want to um, do it as my full time career, um, and so. Uh, I was able to um, get a small role at a at a uh, sell side broker dealer called Miller Tayback back in two thousand and seven mm-hmm. um, and they were a sell side broker dealer you know started as a trading firm big in the options space um, and and then had brought on uh, you know the fundamental research side. They also had macro and technicals. so I uh, started there in December of two thousand and seven uh, about two months after the Uh, The the peak in the market there in 2007. And, you know, early as I was learning kind of, uh, you know, what was learning the markets, learning the business um, early 2008, we would have these morning research meetings, as as firms still do, um, where fundamental analysts would, uh, you know, kind of go over their some of their stock calls and, you know, update their Estimates and, and everything, and you know I kind of noticed a theme as we got into the middle part of two thousand eight. Um, it just seemed like every morning we'd come in and and the fundamental analysts by and large would lower their lower their estimates, lower their price targets, but would keep the buy ratings on the stock. Yeah. you know and that, that that went on for months. Uh, you know as the as the bear market deepens. Um, and after a while, it was kind of like, uh, you know, you were recommending to buy the stock at 80. Now it's at 40 and, and you're still saying to buy it, even though you keep cutting your estimates. And um, at the same time, we had a, a technical analyst there, uh, one of the legends, of course, Phil Roth, um, you know, and he right. was, um, providing more two side analysis, you know, giving sell ideas, talking about the downside risks in the market, um, you know, and after a while, it, that just kind of, uh uh, really, you know, stuck with me and kind of made a lot more sense to me. And, and, uh, you know, that's really how I, I got into technical analysis. And, um, you know, from there, I went through the the CMT program, um, you know, and kind of incorporated technicals uh, into my process as at, at the time, I was kind of a, a junior sales trader and, um, you know, trying to, to sell the research. But as time went on, I, you know, really was pushing the technicals a lot more and then kind of was pushing my own work eventually. Um, And then uh, that led to, as you said, getting my CMT in in 2013. Um, And I actually, uh, Phil Phil Roth retired in 2012, so I was able to actually take over um, as the firm's market technician at that point, as I was doing a lot of my own uh, internal you know, uh, notes and research and sending it out to clients and, you know, getting some feedback and stuff. And so, uh, yeah, I took over for, for Miller-Tabek, uh, in 2012 as our technician and kind of the rest is history.
1: And, um, so what was it like, uh, working with Phil Roth? I mean, that's, that's an incredible opportunity to have him as your, as your sort of initial segue into technical analysis.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it, he was, Talking with him was as good as it gets, you know, as yeah. far as kind of classic charting and stuff. What's what's funny is, is you know, his his notes. He would do a note every day, um, and they were, you know, they were from fifteen, I think, to twenty pages every day, um, but with zero charts. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, you know, I think. Um, that was kind of the, this the salesperson's job is to, because most clients, you know, we're not going to sit through and read a 20 page text, uh, technical note every morning. So, you know, as a salesperson, you kind of had to weed through it and kind of put your own spin on it. But, um, you know, just, yeah, listening to him and, you know, kind of seeing his, his, uh, how he, how, you know, he, he was very big on, in, on, um, you know, breath and, and a lot of indicators that, you know, some of which people still use today. Some of them were more pro- proprietary, but yeah, it was an invaluable experience and definitely a, an awesome um, jumping off point for, for my career.
1: Yeah, no question. That's a very, very uh, great opportunity for you. And obviously you took a great, great advantage of it. I, and and you, it's it's interesting just hearing your your career and you, you've only gotten your CNT 10 years ago. And in the years that we overlapped when I was on the buy side, I, I would have never known that you were that new to the technical side. I mean, you're you really took to this because you were. I, I, and to this day, I think you're one of the best technicians on the street. So just to, to find out now that you 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 were so young in the business, I probably wouldn't have paid you so much. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thanks, Dave. Um, you know, yeah, it was it was uh, very much. Uh, you know, once I kind of dove into it, I kind of uh, you know embraced as much as I could and and really you know that was my, you know, that still is my life, right? I'm always thinking about charts and looking at charts and, and technicals 24 seven, uh, even when the market's not open. So I appreciate yeah. that.
1: Absolutely. What is, um, what was the reason why you decided not to choose golf for a career? Because I think if I had the skills to choose golf versus getting my head beat in the market for, for, uh, multiple decades, I probably would have chosen golf. At least I, while I'm still getting my head beaten in it, at, at least it's outdoors walking through the woods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> well the you know the irony in the golf business everyone thinks that, yeah it's you know all you do is play golf, and you know you kinda see when you when you get once you get to a point where you're, you know, kind of running the show at a at a golf club, um, you really don't play much golf for the most part. Yeah. Um, and you're working a lot of weekends and holidays. And so it's a, it's tough to, you know, on the family side and B it's, you know, if you really want to play a lot of golf, it's probably ironically not the career for you because you're always working. Um, mm-hmm. so that was, those are the two main aspects of, of what made me look elsewhere.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I've had the, the great, pleasure of golfing with with many technicians over the years and I and I have to say I think you're the best technician um not only one of the best technicians but you you're certainly one of the best if not the best golfer that I've played who had played with who has a CMT I think Chris Verone is up there as well he's a pretty spectacular golfer as well
2: Yeah that's what I heard we got we should uh we should get a little reunion going
1: Yeah let's come on up come up to uh, Marblehead we got we got a place here at Tedesco Country Club uh get a little uh, CMT outing uh, hopefully uh, Tyler you can join us dust off the clubs
0: so if uh if, if you guys are good golfers, if if we define that as trend following, I'd say more I'm more of an options play. Sometimes my divot goes <laughs> further than the ball. You know, I, I don't know if that's really a strategy I, I that op- you can employ on the golf course. Options can be very uh, can be can be very
2: valuable, you know? Yeah. I'm a very volatile golfer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> let's uh let, let's keep the analogy going because I, I always especially folks that are really accomplished at other things, whether it be um Uh, golfing, or we had Jeff DeGraff on and he's an accomplished uh, uh, pilot and, you know, other things like this, where there's just analogies and takeaways that you can learn from very difficult things and uh, how they perhaps have made you a better investor or trader. So um, what, what have you think, what do you think you've learned from golf that kind of gives you the wherewithal to, um, to endure the ups and downs and ins and outs of uh, investing and technical analysis?
2: Yeah, uh, it's a great question, and you know I've, I've definitely thought about that over the years. And you know I think the main the main thing that I think is is a great analogy is in both golf and investing. Um, a lot of times you have to do the opposite of kind of what seems obvious or what what you t- what what your mind wants to do. And and for an example, you know if uh, you know if you're trying to hit um, you know chip shot, hit it up in the air. When you start out in golf, you're you think, Oh, I got to I got to hit it high. I got to lean back and flip the hands and get the ball to go high. And that's actually the complete opposite. You want to yeah. you know, keep your, keep your way forward, keep the club moving down. Um, you know, and that creates the backspin that gets the ball to go up and, you know, investing there's so many, you know, just counterintuitive moves that you need to do. Um, and I still struggle with that today. And, you know, trend following is, is probably one of the, one of the best examples and listening to your, your podcast last week with with Eric Walden Oppenheimer, you know he's probably one of the best momentum analysts I can think of out there. And you know, and that's one of the hardest th- hardest things to do is just stick with stick with what's working, whether it's on the upside or downside. Um, you know, and there's there's just it, it's easier said than done. But that's you know, it's very hard to train your mind to to kind of do that. I think.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating observation because that's a lot of what um, investing is about doing what's uh, actually counterintuitive. Um, and the the more counterintuitive uh, things that you can do, the the more likely it is that it will work. Obviously, that's not true across the board, but um, you know the 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 idea of hitting down on a ball as opposed to trying to scoop it off the ground is uh, in the beginning stages is clearly not is not uh, intuitive, uh, but it works. It's the right way to do it, and I think momentum is something similar in this in the sense that that nobody wants to buy what's working. And yep. um, yep. but it's it's very counterintuitive to think that that's a, a a good decision. Certainly, we're not taught that in school. But that turns out to be one of the best things you can do in investing: is buy what's going up and sell what's going down. Of course, adjusted for trend structure and whatnot. But um, you know that that's that's an interesting takeaway: the counterintuitive nature of success, right? Totally,
2: totally, yep.
1: Yeah. Um. So. Maybe maybe uh, vet out a little bit more for us your process. What what kinds of things do you look at? Are you are you more of a trend follower, momentum, or are you more uh, mean reversion and counter trend trading? Or
2: yeah, um, I would definitely say I'm I am I try to I try to um, I try to be trend following until there's a reason to to be mean reverting. And I would say I'm definitely more. I look for more mean reversion opportunities than. You know, I'd say a lot of my peers and part of that is because i I do tend to focus um, on some of the some of the faster money some of the uh, shorter term institutional investors out there that um, you know are always looking for kind of quick you know shorter trades which oftentimes you know those tend to be counter trend right um, and at the same time a lot of the long short community um, you know is looking for opportunities where something may be too stretched on the upside or or too uh, oversold on the downside and that's really You know, it's a it's a tough it's tough to explain it because, you know, on the one hand, you know, I I do believe that trend following and momentum is is very powerful. Um, And so finding when it when something becomes too strong in one direction or too uh, weak in the other direction is is a bit there's there's a bit of a feel there for me. And, and part of that also goes back to the, to the golf analogy, right? I mean, you can, you can teach somebody, you know, the fundamentals and, and what's, what's a cr- correct swing and what, you know, what makes a proper golf swing. But at the end of the day, there's also a feel element to it. And you kind of, you know, have the more you do it, the more you kind of know what you're looking for. So, um, you know, and for me, there, there's also got to be some of the best meaner version opportunities are those in which, um, it's it the price action goes counter to the news right and so if you're looking for something that's been in a extremely strong uptrend and you're looking for an opportunity to fade it um you know the best setup is probably when you get good news out of that whether it's a stock or you know an asset class and you get quote-unquote good news and and the price action is bad or vice versa um you know when you get bad action on the and you get bad news and the price action is good. So those are the opportunities where I'll, I'll look more for mean reversion. Um, but generally, yeah, I mean, I, I try to, you know, kind of stay on uh, on the primary trend of things um, as best that I can.
1: It's interesting, the, the speaking to the, the corollaries between, I guess, uh, life and trading, the, just the, <laughs> this happens to me all the time. And I think most people can uh, associate with this that uh, whenever I'm on the driving range, and it doesn't count, I'm like, 250 down the middle off on every drive and i can almost nail the flag on my chips and everything else but then when you get out onto the into the actual round uh when, when it actually counts and money's on the line and things like that it's a lot more difficult so uh the analogy in, in investing of course is back testing and paper trading and all these wonderful things that can happen without the pressures of of real life uh, uh money management with clients and everything else Uh, So paper trading versus real trading is is a world of difference. And I think when folks are asking me about getting into the business and they're talking to me about all the backtesting they've done and all the paper trading they've done, I I think uh, the, the next most important step in their journey is to definitely get some money on the table because it changes when you're actually doing it for a living.
2: Hundred, hundred percent, and and the same thing with what I do in, in my analysis. And even though I don't directly have money on the line, and I'll use last October as an example. Um, you know, that's the, the market was in a bearish trend into the end of the, end of September. Um, inflation worries were very high. Obviously, we got that extremely hot CPI print um, in mid October, and the market. You know couldn't go down anymore and and in hindsight, you know that was a signal for immune reversion to the upside opportunity um you know, and I think uh you know i didn't I didn't put enough weight in that emphasis in that in in the moment, so um, that's an example of of <laughs> in hindsight, everyone can look back and say, oh yeah, it was a horrible you know hot c p i print and the market couldn't go down, of course, that was you know an easy buy, and you know in
1: the real time, it's not always that easy yeah, we also we we also remember the past the way we want to remember, which is, which is, again, it's why it's really, really important to journal and to write down what you were thinking in the moment because everybody's prone to remembering things that the way they want to remember it. And, you know, I, you know, I remember when this happened and I remember calling it right. And, but if you actually put it down in, in words and put it in a journal, you don't have to show it to anybody, but it, it's extremely instructive. And, and I often find that the, one of the best teachers over times is not only the market itself, but also your own experience that you journal. And you just go back and read it six months later to yep. get the honest truth of what you were actually feeling in that moment, and from there you can actually learn. But if you if you're just going by your own memory of what you thought, you don't learn anything. In fact, if you do learn anything, it's usually um, bad practices embedded.
0: Hundred percent. Yeah. So Jonathan, thinking about that mean reversion, and we talk a lot about the universality of technical analysis, meaning. It's time frame agnostic. It's asset class agnostic. You can use this on any publicly traded security. When you're talking to clients about, uh, you know, uh, a, a counter trend trade or taking a, uh, a contrarian view, do you also emphasize the, you know, certain tools to look for a confirmation that indeed there is a reversal in place? And what I mean by that is, you know, how do you coach, what do you, what do you look for? What do you coach clients to look for in terms of confirmation that the market is indeed coming back around and we can keep looking at that October, 2022 low. Um, I mean the following week, pretty impressive trend rally. Do you, do you wait, uh, do you wait for a certain signal to get back in?
2: Uh, you know, it, it depends on what your, what your kind of time frame and objective is as a, as an investor. Right. And so, you know, um, if you are somebody who's, you know, looking for a very fast, you know, three, 5% trade, then you kind of have to, um, you you know, you kind of have to see it in real time. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, I do try to try to do that as well. I, I think, um, you know, I, I try to be actionable as real time as possible with with clients, and so as it's happening. Um, and and the issue there, of course, is you don't necessarily get the confirmation, right? And so in that scenario, you have to either um, use proper risk management, whether it's uh, you know stopouts below the day's low or that sort of thing, or um, risk defined through options and and that sort of thing. And so in that case, you can kind of be a little more aggressive, and um, you know you, you you kind of get a feel for. Right, things are not acting like they should. It's probably going the other way, and you can take a shot. If if you want to be a little more conservative, um, and you're a little bit of a longer term, you know, investor, then yeah, you probably want to wait for some more confirmation. Whether that's you know, getting getting above some previous highs, or you know, allowing the moving mm-hmm. averages, short term moving averages, to kind of turn up, that sort of thing. So, it, you know, there's no you know, one answer for that. I would say
0: um, it's just a it's just a, a risk management and time frame issue. Yeah, I, I think you, you answered it perfectly. There's there's always something, right? We don't just jump in front of the train hoping that it's going to stop and go backwards on the tracks, right? Yeah. Especially yeah. if it's already ran you over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. 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 You know i uh just thinking about uh, how how folks uh, develop a thesis right that that we can have some probabilities on our side. Uh, I know you look at a lot of things beyond just uh, just the price and volume of uh, any given security. Uh, let's talk a little bit about you know what what you see as the big factors uh, pressing on this market right now. What do you look for outside of um, you know equity indices to inform your opinion on on where they might be headed?
2: Yeah, so I I do look at a at a lot of cross asset um, factors and and um, whether it's rates or currencies, commodities, and you know it's it's a function of you have to know what the environment you're in, right? Because correlations come and go, and so um, you know since the start of 2022, um, you know markets have been very sensitive to rates, and for the most part um trading inverse to uh inverse to rates. So rates have been going up, stocks have been under pressure. Um, you know, so so I do look at a lot of uh, you know, intermarket analysis. Um, you know, I look at a lot of uh sector relationships, you know, whether it's equal versus cap weight, if you're looking at um, you know, cyclicals versus defensives, high beta versus low vol, that sort of that sort of thing. Um, and uh yeah, I think it you know, it's kind of trying to Take the entire um, universe of information we have and, and narrow it down to, to what's most important and what's uh, and what, what the market cares about at
1: any given time. Mm-hmm. You know, when you when you look at the most recent uh, environment that we've been in, I mean, we were talking a little bit about about this before we st- we started uh, the recording. Um, we all know about how strong the quote unquote market has been with the S and P up as much as it's been. But you know, I don't know what the percentage is these days, but it's probably thirty to forty percent of the top, say, twenty stocks represent the S and P five hundred, and that's why the market's gone up so much. And the rest of the market's kind of gone gone sideways. And and your, if not down, um, but your your task is to kind of help institutions uh, outperform their benchmark. And and if we're being honest, the only way you could have outperformed the benchmark today is if you if you actually owned these stocks in an equal representation to what they're in the S&P to begin with. Um, so when when you're trying to help PMs and and analysts and whatnot navigate this from an institutional standpoint what what kind of guidance have you been giving them where there's been such a almost historic disconnect between what the average stock is doing what what this very narrow set of mega cap stocks is doing?
2: Yeah, I mean that that's that's a great question and it's it's been a diff, it was a difficult um you know summer in that regard because um the like you said the average stock um is massively you know i, th- I think people would actually be shocked to know how poor the average stock has done over the last uh, uh nine to twelve months and yet you know the s&p is up significantly so um you know i i tried to identify more you know Single stock or or sector areas. Um, obviously, energy has kind of been one area that's on and off. You know, performed very well. Um, but I certainly didn't uh, you know give enough emphasis to the uh, to the strength and, and the you know, quote unquote magnificent seven. Um, you know, largely because they were still under you know what I considered you know, overhead supply, right? And that, that doesn't mean that they can't rally, and they did in fact rally. But a lot of them um, you know went much further. Uh, into into the supply than you know I would anticipated, but you know this year is a great example of uh, you know just how how the average stock and the indices can can be bifurcated by a significant amount.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, what, what's your assessment of those? Call it ten stocks today. I mean, many of them are still below their uh, their twenty one highs, and so there's always that risk of this being a a failed high or or just a counter trend rally that. Maybe just kind of segues into a, a range, if not something worse, uh, down the road. What do, what are you thinking here? Are these is this the early signs of new bull market leadership, which is which is how bull markets start, where you get whatever whatever leads off the bottom is the new leadership for the bull market. So is that what we're looking at, or do you think this was just a counter trend rally in an ongoing bear market?
2: Yeah, it's, I think the latter. I mean, if if you look at um, you know, so we looked at every major market bottom you know after a 15% drawdown or more um, that we have data on and you know at this point 11 or 12 months in, into a quote unquote new bull market the average reading for a percentage of stocks above the 200 day moving average has been about 76% the weakest reading was 50% uh, coming off the 90 the uh, October 98 bottom into the tech bubble top and mm-hmm. we're at uh, you know we're under 48% right now so yeah. um, you know the issue uh, the issue for really for this whole you know, market call is is one of two things. We'll we'll look back on this period, and one of two things will have been true. It's it's either of going to been um, you know, the slowest, longest start to a renewable market, right? To get that breadth expansion, to get you know more participation, um, really that we've ever seen. Uh, let's call it in the last thirty years. Um, and pr- probably even, even farther, or it's going to be, you know, the longest, largest bear market rally that we've ever seen. Right. Cause we, you know, we got back to 4,600, the all-time high is 4,800. So, and that's, that's if we in fact go and break the October low of 3,600, let's call it. So one of those two things will be true. Um, you know, and the issue is really the internal breath and you know we we tried to get some improving improving breath in february Um, that failed we had another attempt in uh in july and august and that couldn't really get you know escape velocity and now things are are actually breaking down pretty significantly um and we actually did another study um this week in, in our note to clients so what we looked at we noticed that the equal weight s p 500 was you know, pretty far below its 200-day moving average while the S&P was still above it. And so we looked at all times over the last 30 years when equal weight S&P was at least 2% below its 200-day moving average while the S&P was still above it. And then to weed out the, you know, the times where we were, Newly in a newly bull market, for instance, coming off the COVID bottom. We, we also said, okay, let's, let's look at those times when the S&P 500 itself is down 2% or more over the last two months. So you know, we have a divergence equal versus cap weight, and we've been a little bit weak over the last uh, two months. And the occurrences that we get are, are actually pretty, pretty ominous. There's only been five kind of occurrences, if you will. Um, the first was in August of 98, um, right ahead of the, uh, the Asian financial crisis. Uh, the second was in September of 2000, I'm sorry, January of 2000, right ahead of the tech bubble top. Uh, the third was September 07, a month before the, the, uh, the peak in, in 07. The fourth was October of 18 before that um, you know, pretty significant fourth quarter drawdown in 2018. Wow. And then the last one was uh, early March, March 2nd, 2020, uh, right in the early innings of the, of the COVID crash. So um, pretty ominous, ominous setup. And, uh, you know, obviously if a uh, sample size of five is, is maybe not relevant, but I think if it really just speaks to the fact that, um, you know, we, we've, had eleven months of of quote unquote renewable market and yet you know equal weight is back under its two hundred day moving average. That's just not consistent with what you see in newable markets.
1: You know when you're talking about um, equal weight versus cap weighted, uh, do, do you follow the? Um, I'm assuming you you rank the stocks. I mean the uh, the sectors for their relative performance to rank them according to you know what's the best sector versus what's the worst sector.
2: Um, we don't know.
1: You don't. Okay, I, I was I was going to ask only because if you if you do that exercise, uh, what what I find is the the best ranked sectors are number one is energy, and then you have technology, industrials, discretionary, and and energy, and then believe it or not, financials. That's the top of the the, the rank right now when you're looking at over the, some blend of the say three, six, nine, and twelve month momentum. When you kind of blend those out, you end up with a with a pretty cyclical, pretty bullish. Uh, uh sector leadership which is kind of confounding only because we we also know that uh that the average stock is basically unchanged on the year and most of what we've seen is just these mega caps rallying across the range and and yet despite all that which that's all that's all cause for concern but despite all that we have the equally weighted sector ranks are actually pretty cyclical so it's 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 a pretty interesting uh uh, kind of foggy environment that we 're in, would you say
2: yeah and and uh, you know I'll also say that along those lines, the traditional you know bond proxies that are more typically more defensive are are not you know showing any leadership, and I think part of that 's the you know the fact that we 're in you know a rising rate environment right um, and so that 's you know not not a typical what we 've seen over the last uh forty years let's say so uh, yeah there's some there's some interesting things going on for sure.
1: Yeah, utilities today are down three percent which is just incredible when you, i mean obviously we have uh, mm-hmm. rates; rates their bond proxies, so if you know rates are heading south which uh they're doing again today rates are going up prices going down makes sense that uh utilities would struggle but at the end of the day they're actually i think they're, they're probably down the most today
0: mm-hmm. yep yep down the most today but uh as a relative outperformer over the last uh week right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Speaking of uh, corollaries, I, I couldn't help but notice, uh, you know, just last week, uh, looking back at 2015, and we had the, you know, sort of expected seasonal weakness, uh, August, and then into the end of September, where uh, we had we had real weakness in the S and P 500 before a rally through the fourth quarter that. Uh, just preceded uh, a deeper dive in uh, in January and February, where we came back to double, double test the October low from 2014. Um, in terms of, of where we're at right now, I mean, is that, um, uh, do you guys do scenario analysis about, uh, you know, perhaps further CHOP versus a longer dated thesis on, um, I mean, you were referencing 07 and, uh, and the year 2000, um, is, is that what you're preparing for something much more severe or, uh, or something akin to the 2015, 2016?
2: Yeah. I mean, look, we, we try not to get too far, too many steps ahead. Right. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, it's easy to, to kind of draw the really bad scenarios given, um, you know, given what breadth is doing and then such, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, we kind of, we kind of take it one step at a time. So I think, you know, we've been focusing on the 4,200 area initially, which was the breakout, um, you know, in, in May, it's also kind of right around the rising 200 day moving average. So I think that's kind of a logical mm-hmm. first step. And then, you know, we'll, we'll evaluate how the market reacts, right? Because, um, uh, you know, in a, in a, if it's, if it's still a more constructive environment, then we should see, you know, a strong, reaction. There strong buyers come in and, and a positive reaction. And if we, if we fail to see that, then, you know, you're probably looking at, um, you know, something in the high 30, you know, 38, 3900, something like that. So we'll kind of take it that, you know, one step at a time. Um, you know, beyond that, uh, you know, whether you're talking, you know, the cyclical or secular cycles that that gets a little, uh, you know, a little more, uh, a little hairy, right. Because, yeah. you know, we, we, the data set we have over the last hundred years or so, we tend to think, you know, secular markets moving these 15 to 20 year cycles. And I think it's pretty consensus that we you know, we started the new secular bull in, in 2012. And so if you are a believer in that um, and you're gonna say we're at a secular peak, um, that would be a very short secular bull market, right? About uh, about 10 years. So um, on the one hand, it's, it's hard to say that the secular bull is over um on the other hand, you know maybe it's uh, maybe it's we just have too small of a sample size and and you know i think the you know the nineteen sixty six to eighty two bear market um given what interest rates were doing is an interesting analogy given you know we had a you know a rising interest a rising secular trend for interest rates during that bear market um and you just really went sideways for a long time so mm-hmm. um you know that's kind of something that uh big picture is is of is is valid, I think, but it's not necessarily worth uh, making that call because you know you would, we
0: don't have to make that call at this point. Right, 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 right. Plus, clients care about what you did for them last quarter, not uh, <laughs> not the yes. not the secular trend, right? Yeah. So, so let's uh, let's move on to that a little bit, Jonathan. Uh, obviously, uh, your clients are not passively owning the whole index, uh, so even you know even in a range-bound market, you have a lot of bifurcation between individual securities. Uh, So in in this kind of choppy market at the index level, where are you steering people for for great opportunities, even within sectors that have been beaten down?
2: Yeah, I mean, like I said, energy has probably been one of the standouts on the upside. Um, Even you know a, a, it's not a sector but a a group uh, within kind of the energy material space is uranium and you know, those stocks mm-hmm. have been been acting very very well over the last couple of months, so that's an area we've been been looking at um, and you know outside of that though it's been it's been tough i mean you know if, if you didn't catch the the tech move um, this summer then outside of that there there's not been a lot of uh, of strong uptrends um, on a sector basis, so you know it's really been kind of the protecting, you know, protecting gains more. And, um, you know, for those that have been able to short, you know, looking for opportunities on the short side. And, you know, I think, um, lately the consumer area has been, been in, uh, you know, an area showing up a lot of weakness, um, you know, whether it's, uh, restaurant stocks or retailers, um, mm-hmm. you know, some of the travel names, that sort of thing has been uh, a focus on the, on the downside of late.
0: Yeah, anybody who's uh, sat in a plane recently knows that uh, that's that's a really uncomfortable position. <laughs> maybe mm-hmm. we, maybe yeah. we don't want to be Air- investing in those uh, Yeah. Those I mean,
2: airlines uh, maybe one of the best mean reversion groups out there. I mean, they they had yeah. a 52 week high uh, you know, in in mid-July and now they're back to almost uh, you know, lowest level since last December. So yep. tough group.
1: Yeah. Tough. Yeah, I was just going to mention that they had, they had turned the 200 day average we had a bunch of base breakouts and then they literally v-top well there's this small probably uh you could identify in the daily chart a small head and shoulders top there but yeah it's pretty much cascaded straight down since then and yep. that, that's kind yep. of the environment we're in right i mean it's just trend following has been tough in this environment
2: yep and and corresponded with the uh with the breakout in crude right crude started to pick up yeah. in yeah, uh, yeah, in in mid july
1: yeah yeah so um if we step back and kind of look at taking it taking into consideration your your overall view of the market i mean what what are some of the big levels that jump out uh, uh at you on the say the s&p 500 maybe the q's that uh, maybe yeah, I mean, some of our the, listeners can key off of
2: yeah so you know i mentioned 4200 on the s&p which is also the 200 day moving average um i also you know one of, the, one of the tools i've found has been useful over the years uh is something called volume at price and yeah. um you know, most people they'll look at volume on a time series, so how much volume trades on any given day. Um, but you can also look at it on a on a price basis. So, or let's say over the last three years, which is I, I tend to use that for my volume at price charts. How much volume over the last three years is traded at each given price level? And what you find is there tends to be times where there's you know, gaps in volume, or what I call a volume pocket, and we're we just started to break into one now. And basically, what what I found over the years is price tends to move very slowly through areas where there's been a lot of volume history, and very quickly through areas where there has not been a lot of volume history. And um, so, the fact that we're in this volume gap in the S and P, which started at um, I call it 43.75. Uh, that kind of that volume pocket gets you down to around forty one fifty. So, mm. you know, we're in that in that area, which which you could see prices move fairly quickly. And you know that kind of also lines up with that forty two hundred level. Um, and then as far as the, the Nasdaq, if we're talking you know, the QQQs, we're also in that volume pocket, and that's that's a bit bigger. Um, that gets you down to around three twenty. On the queues, which is still about uh, 10% lower from here, and that also, I believe, lines up with the 200-day moving average. Uh, The 200-day. a little bit below it. 329, yeah. So, you know, there's there's some interesting uh, downside objectives just based on 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 a volume pattern as well.
1: And uh, given the the big move in crude, I mean, is this? I hear a lot of people talking about this being the start of a new secular bull market in commodities not just crude oil I'm curious what you think there I mean there's a lot of great charts in that in the commodity space
2: yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, I, there's, a, there's also a lot of ugly ones and, you know, whether it's the soft commodities and stuff that yep. so, commodities seem more bifurcated to me. Um, and crude, you know, we, have been constructive on it, um, since the breakout through uh, like 81 or 82 is, was, was a kind of a key breakout for us. Um, there's maybe a bit more upside, but when you, you know, the other thing that I, that I, you know, put a lot of weight on is kind of the anecdotal evidence, right? And sometimes you can look at sentiment positioning through the hard data, whether it's CFTC positioning, but, um, you know, it's the anecdotal stuff. It's the conversation you have with clients. It's what you see on CNBC. It's what you see on Twitter. Um, and I'd say the sentiment on on crude has, you know, come a long way in the last two months from, from when it was sub $80. And so, you know, we're, you know, the trend is still good. Momentum's still pretty good, but I just wonder if, uh, you know, there's, there's a little too much optimism now in crude um, after the run it's had. But uh, yeah, it's I'd say overall in commodities is is much more of a mixed bag for
1: us. Yeah. You know, the, the, the real, I think the real tell for a bull market, at least historically, and it's got a very good track record over time, is just the ratio between copper and gold. And when copper is outperforming gold, you tend to have a pretty robust bull market. And that's that peaked with the market uh, back in early 2022, and it's been pretty much in a straight down downtrend since then. Which, which was another warning that that what you see on the surface, as painted by the those 10 mega cap names pushing the S and P higher, was just not at all corroborated from the bottom up. And the whole idea that that uh, you know one of the one of the things you hear folks saying on CNBC is that the market's whistling past the graveyard, and it's kind of like there's this big disconnect between all the really bearish macro data and what the market's doing, i.e. the S&P. But the reality is most stocks are not doing that. And in most inter intermarket relationships, it would normally be firing positively in a bull market if just not triggered. I mean, do you do you watch this copper to gold? And I'm curious on your yeah, thoughts on yeah. it.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And it's it's, it's it's good you bring up gold because, you know, that's been a very frustrating trade as well. I mean, there's been a couple times where it's really looked like it's, um, you know, poised to maybe break out of this consolidation and, but I can look at it two ways, right? Because gold, um, is one of the m- best assets that has that trades correlated to other assets. And I mean, it's, it's very, very strongly inversely correlated to the dollar and to real rates. Um, mm. and so on the one hand, you know it, gold's the fact that gold's still at four percent on the year, given what real rates have done, they've exploded the upside, the dollar's mm-hmm. broken out to the upside you know it's still a pretty good performance for gold given the given that backdrop and then on the other hand you know you just can't really say it's uh it's in any kind of trend it's you know it's now today it's breaking down below its 200-day, making lower highs since since May, um, and so gold's I think very going to be very fascinating uh, heading into the fourth quarter. Again, if we if we see a little bit of pullback in the dollar and if if rates real rates start to top out a bit, um, you know maybe gold becomes more interesting. But it's it's kind of just in uh, in no man's land here. Um, uh, so we're we're just
1: on on watch for it. Yeah, one of the one of the biggest losers today actually is a GDXJ, which is the the uh, Mm
2: -hmm. junior
1: gold miners. That thing's down three and a half percent almost. There you go. Three and a third. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I I think this this is a good opportunity to to get get your thoughts on uh, where you kind of detailed a big part of your um, your process is mean reversion or at least trying to detect. indications that the that the current leg of a trend is is terminating so what kinds of things are you going to be looking for at the s and i'm assuming that it holds above 4200 or 4150 or something but beyond the level what are the kinds of things you're going to be looking for to indicate that this is a good mean reversion trade setting up to go higher
2: yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to be in a, in an ideal world, obviously you'll see a pickup in volume. Um, you'll see, uh, elevated put call ratios or we We started to see a little bit of pickup in, in put call ratios, a little more fear. Um, you know, obviously the VIX is, is hitting 19 today. It's getting up there. Um, you know, one thing we did not see at all last year, which was, really the first time since we have data on, on VIX and VIX futures is we didn't really see a big inversion in the VIX curve. So usually you see, you know, spot VIX get, uh, at least 10 points above, um, the second month VIX future. And you never saw that all last year. So I don't know if we'll get to that point on this move, but, you know, I think for a bigger washout, that'd be, um, something we would look for, um, you know and then and then it's kind of you know are they selling all the winners i mean today eh, as we're talking s p down you know almost one and a half percent but nvidia was only down 74 bips so um you know mm-hmm. i think ultimately you're going to see some of those real winners get you know have have some big three four five percent down days and um, so stuff
0: like that is is are things that we look for mm. so you're Solid. you're looking for uh Leadership to catch down to the overall market, not to trade that as a signal of you know there's some some other uh unforeseen strength within those leaders that aren't following the rest of the crowd,
2: yeah, and that's a good point I mean that's always uh you know it's it is you can look at it two ways right if you're bullish, you'd say, well, there's still you know stocks acting well, and you know Nvidia yeah it's down decently from from its all time highs, but it's uh you know really has i would not say it's been um i would not say it's been damaged uh, enough mm-hmm. and so you could say well maybe that's a sign that leadership is there and, and we're but i think that's where you have to kind of take a step back and look at there's been enough deterioration under the under the surface that it usually does not end without you know kind of those names seeing some sort of capitulation in the near term
0: yep you know you uh just to circle back for a second to uh, one of the tools you mentioned volume at price uh for any of our listeners and i know we have a lot of uh, fundamentally grounded investors who uh, who tune in to fill the gap uh you mentioned volume at price, and we've talked a lot about these areas of uh potential support I think that that concept of polarity that's something that that was resistance or where you had high volume and a lot of uh, trading around or concentration around certain price levels uh it's amazing to me that. You know some of these tools on a longer term basis uh are, are the same ones that traders in chicago were using you know with market profile uh or adaptations of similar concepts that traders in chicago were using uh on the intraday basis and it's it's really the same concept that we're we're trying to capture what investor behavior is doing um so for you those those levels are concentration of price the narrowing of ranges where we had uh, some consolidation before breakouts um do you you see buyers stepping back in at those levels
2: uh initially yeah you know i I would not expect us to just slice right through you know the 4200 level um without without a fight right and so but that's that's why we you know we want to take it one step at a time and so um it's not worth talking about you know potential downside below that until we were to see 4200 tested and and fail Mm -hmm. um and so yeah i think um you know you we would expect some some support uh, from that
0: zone initially and then we'll, we'll take it from there mm-hmm. 4200 and maybe closely followed by uh some concentration around 41.50 I've, I've heard some uh, some technical analysts talking about drawing their support lines with uh with, with wide markers or crayons given the uh structure around a lot of trading vehicles uh or or algorithmic uh funds systematic funds setting entry points or stops uh you know stops above or below uh what would be key levels so that we we trade past them and and get rid of uh, uh the novice traders and then find our support maybe slightly below yeah, has that that's, held that's up that's for good, you
2: that's 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 a great point and it's, it's really we try to emphasize a weight of the evidence approach and so you know i think i think people do get. A little too hung up on on levels right and so mm-hmm. um they want to know if it breaks this where's it going and well it's you know it's not always it's not always that easy it's more you know these are potential areas where a market could stabilize but you know let's pay attention to you know what what interest rates are doing at that point let's pay attention to what breath is doing um mm-hmm. and you know uh you know kind of take take that whole weight of the evidence approach as opposed to just oh we're, we're bearish below this level or bullish
0: above it yeah it's not a binary. It's not just. It's yeah. not just one yep. chart at a time, right? It's the whole yep. whole scene. Very well said,
1: hey, Jonathan. In, in your um, in your mean reversion framework, I'm curious what you think about banks because that's obviously a big part of what's been driving the the narrative for the year. They had a big washout into March. I'm looking at Citigroup right now. I mean, I think it's actually below its level from where it you know post the the bank crisis. So. Obviously, when you think about supply and demand and fundamentals drive price, why is Citigroup sitting below its low from the bank crisis?
2: Yeah, uh, it's actually it actually hit a 52-week low today, so it uh, took yeah. out its October October of last year low. Um, look, so for mean reversion, you know, it's we, we generally think of it as kind of a, of a rubber band effect, and so um, you know, it it needs to be kind of stretch to get that snap back. And I would say the banks in general, um, you know, maybe on a long-term basis, you could say they're, they're stretched, but really the fact that they've just gone sideways since, since March, uh, are talking about, you know, the KRE or the KBE, um, you know, that, that doesn't really s- signal uh, mean reversion to us or mean reversion opportunities. It's kind of, I think it had the mean reversion after the, uh, you know, after the, uh, after it made a low in, in May. Um, And that kind of ran its course, and now it's you know it's back in the middle of its range. So to us, it's that's another it's another indication that you know it's very tough to call this renewable market with what banks are doing. And again, maybe it's different this time, but um, yeah, I would say it's it's a it's a bearish signal, but not not so bearish that I'm ready for to look for a mean reversion in banks yet.
1: Yeah. Is there a um, is there a setup where you won't do mean reversion? I'm, I'm just thinking about like banks, for instance. I mean, they've obviously had some pretty powerful rallies over the years, but if you actually look at the relative performance of banks relative to the market, uh, it basically peaked in two thousand and four. So it's been about twenty years almost where where banks have been just a complete avoid, and that's the market telling you that the fundamentals here are terrible. So really, the latest. Blow up in the in the banking sector is just another chap, chapter in an ongoing saga. So, is is this something that you would actually mean revert, or, or do you actually need a bigger picture, longer term uptrend for you to buy a, a mean reversion?
2: Uh, no, it's. But again, it's it's more gets back to I think we hit on initially is is you got to know your time frame. I mean, if yeah. if you're if somebody was asking me would I put on a mean reversion in banks for the next two years? No, because of your point, uh-huh. but you can get a, you know, you can get a multi-week or multi-month mean version bounce. And you did, you know, you did see that in, uh, in, in the summer. Right. Um, but I guess to your, to, to, your point relative to the, relative to the market, it really didn't do much even on, on that bounce a little bit, little bit outperformance, but not
1: much. So maybe, uh, what, what's going on in the market today that you think is underappreciated that people don't see, or people don't, don't really um, acknowledge maybe because they just don't have the proper lenses to, to observe these important data points. So what, what do you see that people are, are, are really not seeing?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think big picture, it's, it's the breadth issue and, you know, it's, we, we, we tend to, we all determine whether it's a bull or bear market based on the S and P 500 for the most yeah. part. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, if, so if somebody says, Oh, you know, bears have been wrong this year. I mean, well, it's like, what are you defining by that? Because, um, if we look at the equal weight S and P 500, uh, it is now, I think it's barely up on the year might even be flat. Um, right. And so, uh, you know, if you've been bearish, you took a little pain on the average stock, but you, um, are now, yeah, we're, we're basically dead flat on the equal weight S and P 500. Um, and we're down pretty significantly from the, from the February and July peaks. Right. So, uh, you know, it's just another way of saying breath is, is poor and, um, You know, again, I think Tyler asked, "Does does that mean that can we get breath to catch up because some of the leadership stocks are still holding up, um, or are we going to get the leaders to succumb to the downside?" And and I tend to think it's the latter. Um, So I think that's the main issue that uh, I would say is is not being discussed
1: enough. Yeah. So your your take on this then is is the idea the idea of buying these mega caps on a pullback is not, even though you're a mean reversion, do you think that if, if you get a pullback on the mega caps, there's going to be something better to buy either for a mean reversion or for a trend resumption, as opposed to focusing on these mega caps?
2: Um, big picture, I would probably say yes. Um, but it, it that's why we take it one step at a time, right? Because I don't know, you know, let's take, uh, let's take Apple, for instance, the biggest of them all, um, you know, let's say it pulls back to its 200 day, which was another $6. Uh, you know, is that going to be the best buy over the next two weeks from that point? Maybe, um, you could argue NVIDIA as well. Um, but beyond that, we just, we just don't know. And we don't know how this bear market's going to unfold and, um, you know, where the new leadership is going to be. And, and, you know, I, I tend to think that these mega cap stocks, Magnificent seven, um, have kind of run their course for their leadership, um, yeah, af- after this move. And so, um, yeah, I'd probably be more interested in maybe even energy, right. Uh, on this pullback, we'll see how that acts. That's, that's kind of more interesting to me. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's tough for me to get too, too far ahead because I do tend to work in shorter time
1: frames. Right. Okay. Um, what else what's what else is going on that uh, you think you want you think the uh, our listeners would want to know about in this difficult environment uh,
2: so so to me rates bond the bond market is is at a very interesting juncture yeah. um, and you know we this is a is an area we're looking at for mean reversion opportunity because um, so like i said one of the things i look at is how does how does price react to the news um, and we haven't necessarily seen that set up yet for bonds, but um, from a volume perspective, last Thursday on the TLT, which is probably the most actively traded bond ETF, uh, it was the second highest volume day on record uh, last Thursday. Um, and then we're, we're lower in price, higher in yield from that point, but the, the volume in the last four days is really starting to feel capitulative. And then you combine that with, um, we have a, actually have a bullish weekly RSI divergence um, on TLT for now versus the October lows. So, you know, basically it, it, it's on on watch for potential upside mean reversion. And I think it's setting up um, as we, you know, I also pay attention to the calendar and, you know, we're coming into the end of the quarter. Um, bonds are, have been very, very poor performance quarter down about 13 percent so i think the setup is there for this kind of final washout in bonds um and then also you know again you look at uh what's going on under the surface and you know if we if we think that stocks tend to lead the economic data by six to nine months you know what what the consumer stocks and financial stocks and you know travel stocks are suggesting to us is that the data is probably going to start to weaken. And if we think about these stocks that they topped you know, in February, by and large, we're kind of at that point where you should start to see the data weaken. So you, you put that all together and to us, it says that um, you know, bonds are, are a very... Interesting mean reversion potential, and you know, you, again, mm-hmm. the, you ask this question: How do you trade it? Well, you know, you can you can try you know bottom fishing with some tight stops, some risk management, or you can kind of wait for some better confirmation. And you know, I think the best confirmation would be, um, you know, if you get some, you know, maybe some uh,
0: hot economic data, and, and bonds uh, yeah. you know, can't sell off anymore. So, yep. Um,
2: yep.
0: yeah. And on that bond question, John, I mean, like high yield or junk bonds to treasuries have been a, a supreme outperformer now for a couple of years. Um, are are you seeing this only in sovereign bonds or do you think there's some corporate debt plays to make as well?
2: Yeah, you know, I'd say that's the, if there's one um, area that is the knock against uh, our more cautious outlook, it's it's credit spreads because they really haven't, they haven't started to expand or widen like you expect given what, um, you know, has been going on under the the surface. They've, they've started to widen a little bit the last couple of days Mm -hmm. um, but really nothing, you know, to write home about. So Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I don't know the reason for that, but um, it's not, you have seen some, some in some instances where credit spreads are a bit late to kind of, you know, they don't always lead. I think, I think a lot of people assume that, you know, credit always leads equities, and it's not always the case. Sometimes you need to see um, a bit more uh, volatility in the equity market, and then you start to see credit spreads widen. So we're, we're certainly watching that, but I think that's probably, um, if you're a bull, that's probably your best, uh, one of your best arguments right now is that you just haven't seen any reaction in credit spreads. Mm-hmm.
1: Have you have you seen any work that um, that breaks down that relationship, and in, in, uh, where it, where we would draw the same conclusion there that that we just uh, we just drew with respect to the the mega cap large cap S and P five hundred? So, the the S and P five hundred doing so well gives the impression that the stock market's doing fine when it's actually not. Is there anything beneath the surface of that credit spread that that might belie what otherwise seems to be a pretty benign? Interpretation of the the economic uh, economic outlook, is it cap weighted yeah. or anything like that?
2: Um, I mean, are you talking examples of when credit spreads? Well, they're, all, they're indices, so? right?
1: We're comparing um, credit spreads versus versus uh, treasuries. Are treasuries, those just right. pure credit spreads, or are they cap weighted? Are they asset? Are they no, driven it's by just, the, the size just, of the asset in the credit, or?
2: Yeah, I haven't dug into the weeds that that much on those, so I'm ju- I'm just using the generic, um, you know, triple B versus ten-year Treasury spreads. Um, yeah. So I don't know the breakdown of that. But again, if you're you know if you're if you're just using it as more kind of uh, uh, to get get a sense of the weather out there, um, you know, it's it's probably sufficient. But that would be interesting to kind of break it
0: down below the surface.
1: We'll, we'll have to dig into it and see if we can find anything to put in the show
0: notes. Yeah, up- absolutely. Uh, I did a uh, financial literacy podcast the other day and uh, the the host was asking about, you know, so there's all these charts out there. Like, what what should we start looking at? And uh, I said, well, the the danger for a lot of uh, new entrants to the markets is that they're looking at something super short term and they think the sky's falling uh, based on intraday trading or – People are looking at such long-term views. Uh, I, I made the analogy that if you want to know whether to carry an umbrella, it doesn't really help to look at, you know, average annual rainfall at the country level, right? Like, you, you <laughs> yeah. need to dig in a little bit deeper yep. to get a sense yep. of, you know, what what this afternoon's forecast might look like, right? Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Jonathan, uh, such a wealth of, uh, of wisdom. Uh, I know your, your weekly notes, uh, to clients are are so well regarded, uh, for the, for the generation that's coming up behind you in terms of, uh, you know, their career path and, uh, the kinds of things that you find are, are most valuable to, uh, to your client audience. What kind of advice would you have for young technicians?
2: Uh, I would say, you know, there's, again, there's so much, uh, to look, to look at when you're first you know, trying to to figure out, um, you know, how, how to use technical analysis. And Mm -hmm. I would say as I've gone on, I've probably used less of, of the information out there as opposed to more, um, and you really just have to find out what works for you and, and just, you know, wrapping it up into the, to the golf analogy. I mean, there's, um, mm-hmm. there's a million different swings out there and, and they can all work, right. A lot of, a lot of different ways, a lot of different ways to get the ball in the hole. So I don't yeah. think, uh, you know, you, there's one you know way to analyze markets. It's kind of whatever works for you. And, you know, like some people use different moving averages, some people use different indicators and so, just find what works for you and then, you know, just, just read as much as you can. There's a lot of smart people out there putting out content, whether it's on social media or, or you know, from the financial community. So, uh, you know, just try to, try to read as much as you can and, and, and also, you know, take a look at some of the fundamental analysis, the macro. You know, I think a lot of the macro analysis can be helpful as well
0: um, mm-hmm. to, to kind of tie in with, with the technicals really well said uh what a what a glorious age we live in uh, when I first got involved with the uh, CMT Association. I too got to spend a lot of time with Phil Roth, and uh, unfortunately, uh, you know that generation didn't didn't really jump onto Twitter when it took off, and so you had to uh, you had to go out to lunch or grab a cup of coffee to get their their input. and now we have access to hundreds of thousands of folks uh, right at our fingertips. so uh, good good advice to access that info. Jonathan, as that. always, it's great to talk with you. Uh, say hi to my hometown community there in Minnesota, and uh, looking forward to seeing you again in person real soon.
2: Same here, guys. It was,
0: uh, it was a pleasure. Talk soon. Yeah.
1: Talk Thanks to you for your soon. time
0: today, Jonathan. Fill the Gap is brought to you with support from Optima. In addition to candidate study of the official CMT curriculum, Optima provides a full video course on all of the material that candidates need to know for each level of the CMT exams. Each course is broken up into modules ranging from 15 to 45 minutes, depending on the complexity and length of the topics being covered. Learn more at (laughs) Optima.com.